basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. ONC? Go. ASD? RAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. As I sit here in 2021, I know, and in fact, I pretty much take for granted that with the press of pretty much a single button, I can connect myself to another person pretty much anywhere on the face of the planet. Pretty much. Within a few seconds, I'll be able to not only speak to that person, but probably to see them as well. I take this ability utterly for granted, and in fact, I do it multiple times a day without really thinking about it. Um, it's no exaggeration to say that my livelihood depends on it. In fact, the fact that you're listening to this podcast almost also certainly depends on it. Connection between people and places around the world, almost anywhere in the world, is now constant, ever-present, and ubiquitous. It may, in fact, be the defining feature of our age. But even for someone who has lived through that transition to the age of hyperconnectivity, as I have, it's hard to remember that it was not always so. Only 60 years ago, communication between humans in widely separated parts of the globe was not exactly uncommon, but it was a thing that required planning and forethought, and it was only really possible where a significant amount of infrastructure had been specifically put in place to enable it. It required a metal cable connection over poles or underground or under the ocean. Those cables were expensive, and the number of signals they could carry was pretty limited compared to what we're used to today. In short, bandwidth, as we now call it, the capacity to send and receive communications was a limited resource, which means that it was expensive, which means that it was used sparingly and only when it was really required. If, that is, you lived in a place where the infrastructure had been put in place, which in 1960 basically meant living in or near an urban center in Europe or North America, or a few other selected parts of the planet. If you didn't live in a place where the cable had been laid, your options for communicating with people that you couldn't see uh, were dramatically more limited. Basically, you or whoever you wanted to talk to both needed to have a fairly sophisticated radio, which could both transmit and receive. Those radios needed to be powerful enough to transmit signals over the distance between you, and you needed to contrive to both be at your radios and have them switched on when you wanted to talk. In short, again, communication was limited, rare, and expensive. How different that is from today. How fundamentally that difference shapes our reality. And whether we know it or not, how fundamentally is that transformation linked to our journey off the planet? Today on Terranauts, we'll continue to look at how the early days of getting into space helped start the communications revolution that has so fundamentally shaped our modern world. To do that, though, we need to explore some topics that don't really have anything to do with going to space per se, but which are really essential to understanding how all the pieces fit together. Now, the first of these things is something called the concept of punctuated equilibrium. 
Punctuated equilibrium is a way to describe the way that a lot of complex systems change over time. Even when such systems change dramatically, um, they usually exhibit periods of relative stability or slow evolution for long periods of time that are punctuated by shorter periods of much more rapid change. And this is characteristic of everything from our systems of politics to the development of technology to the development of our economies. Now, often this is because rapid change is sparked by some disruptive discovery or innovation, and this disruption causes established players to be displaced by new ones. And the new innovation is taken up by more new contributors who quickly explore the limits of the new discovery. Then the new players tend to settle down and consolidate their gains and to focus on evolving their new innovations rather than on continuing to create something new and disruptive. And so revolution is replaced by evolution until another disruption occurs. And I mention it here because punctuated equilibrium is certainly an appropriate way to describe the history of telecommunications and of wireless communications and even of the exploration and utilization of space. So we're probably going to talk about it a bit today. Now, the specific topic of disruptive innovation is one upon which literally buckets of ink, both physical and virtual, have been spilled. So I don't think I'm going to go into it in any more detail here. Now, also, the history of telecommunications is a subject that is worth its own podcast. Uh, there may even be one out there. My challenge here today is that I need to do that history a little bit of justice in order to provide some context for the story of how that development intersected with the development of human travel to space and how that conjunction produced a period of pronounced punctuation in the world's equilibrium. So let's do a very rapid tour of the development of telecommunication. Until the middle of the 19th century, communication between humans was effectively limited to the to line of sight. In other words, if you wanted to signal someone in some way, you basically had to be able to see them. Now, a variety of means of signaling were tried that extended the range of human vision, such as using big signal flags and that sort of thing. Um, and you could transmit messages over and longer and longer distances by having the message relayed. In other words, you sent a message to someone that could see you and they repeated it to the next station down the line that could see them and so on. But each passage of the message was limited to being able to see the person who was sending it to you. Now, the first electronic telecommunications device, the telegraph, was developed in the early 1800s and was in fairly widespread use by, say, 1850. Now, using this device, two stations connected by a cable could send messages pretty much instantaneously over a distance much longer than the line of sight, basically only being limited by the length of cable they could lay between them. Now, since the telegraph could only really send a signal consisting of on and off, messages were encoded using a system like Morse code, which allowed operators to use uh, on signals of two lengths, a short one called a dot, and a long one called a dash. And using this system, all the letters in the alphabet were encoded as a short series of dots and dashes. And a trained operator could send a message at about 60 to 100 words a minute using the system. Although it seems primitive to us now, the system really did spark a communications revolution. In 1800, communication was pretty much limited to the speed of a horse or a boat. By 1900, communication was almost immediate between any two places in the world connected by a cable. 
which included intercontinental distances because there were already a series of undersea transoceanic cables in place. And when you think about the massive expense and engineering complexity of laying a cable across the seafloor for thousands of kilometers, it does give you an idea of just how valuable this ability to communicate was seen to be. In 1876, the ability to transmit the human voice over a distance was effectively introduced to the mainstream by Alexander Graham Bell when he filed a patent for the first telephone. The technology had been in development for about 30 years, but Bell was the first to put it all together in a working system. And the main innovation here was actually less about the transmission than about the ability to convert mechanical oscillations of sound into an electrical signal to transmit it over a wire and then convert it back to sound at the other end. For a variety of reasons, telephone systems were mainly focused on short-distance communications until well into the 20th century. It was not uncommon to encounter a telephone in this time, but the concept of a long-distance telephone call was still well into the future. Now, in the late 1890s, the next piece of the telecommunications puzzle began to fall into place with the development of wireless transmission of electrical signals. And the late 1800s was actually one of those periods of extreme punctuation in the development of our understanding of all forms of electricity and magnetism. One of the principal discoveries of the time was that electrical and magnetic fields could actually travel over a long distance without a physical medium like a wire to carry them. This effect was discovered by Rudolf Hertz, who discovered that if he produced a spark between two electrodes, he could induce another spark between two electrodes that were actually not connected to the first two. Uh, this discovery literally sparked intense interest in using this effect to send signals over the air without a need for a cable connection. And within 20 years, practical systems had been developed and were in use in a variety of places, including connecting the Isle of Wight to the English mainland. In 1901, Guglielmo Marconi famously demonstrated that the system could be used to transmit messages across the Atlantic Ocean between a station in Cornwall and one in St. John's, Newfoundland. And now, here, we need to pause briefly to talk about radio waves and radio communications. Okay, I know our digressions are now developing digressions, but I promise I'll keep it short. The main point I want to make is that radio is based on the principle of oscillation. Effectively, the oscillation in an electrical system in one place is transmitted to the air by means of an antenna. This causes an oscillating electromagnetic field to emanate outward from the antenna. Well, we usually visualize this oscillation as a wave that travels away from the transmitter. When the wave encounters another properly tuned antenna, it is capable of exciting oscillations in the receiving antenna, and these oscillations can be decoded to recover the original signal. We describe these radio waves by defining two things, their amplitude, meaning their height, and their length. Although we can also describe this same characteristic by describing instead how quickly they oscillate, which we call the frequency, which is inversely related to the length. So to wrap a whole lot of physics into some very simple principles, the higher the amplitude of the initial wave, the farther it can be used to transmit a signal. And this is because as it travels outward, it diffuses and loses amplitude until eventually it can't be detected anymore. So the stronger it is at the beginning, the farther uh, it can go before that happens. The amplitude of the signal is, in turn, proportional to the amount of power that is put into the transmitting antenna. 
Now, the longer the wavelength of the wave, the longer the antenna and the more power that it takes to drive it. And also, the shorter the wavelength and the higher the frequency, the more information that can be encoded into a given signal. So the history of wireless communication has, and to some extent continues to be, a search for ways to generate higher and higher frequency radio waves that are useful for transmitting information. Now, in the early days, the frequencies were limited to a few hundred hertz, meaning a few, few hundred oscillations per second. The antennas, in turn, were hundreds of meters long and required a massive amount of power to produce any kind of usable signal. This is now what we refer to as the long wave spectrum. The cost to set up and operate a long wave transmitter or a receiving station for that, that matter was really large. In fact, it was so large that it was just about the equivalent of laying a new cable between two points usually. And so the early wireless technology really didn't displace existing wired systems very quickly. But the second generation of wireless technology known as shortwave, which appeared in the 1920s, featured much smaller antennas and much lower power requirements, and so it began to actually replace cables. The advent of shortwave also meant that radio signals now had enough bandwidth or information-carrying capacity to be able to carry more complex signals, like the human voice. Now, in the early days, though, transmission over any distance still required a significant amount of power, so voice transmission was mainly limited to broadcasting, meaning that you'd have a single high-power transmitter that was used to send a signal to many low-power receiving stations. Two-way radio communication, where both stations could talk as well as listen, really only began to appear in the 1930s. And by the advent of the Second World War, it was pretty widespread, though not ubiquitous, in militaries around the world. The technology continued to develop rapidly during World War II in response to military requirements and the massive amount of effort poured into research and development on radio frequency technology during the war. By the end of the war, radio technology had progressed to the point where just about every military vehicle of any size carried one or more radios, and they were capable of communicating over a few tens of kilometers, but really mostly restricted to line of sight. After the Second World War, the pace of change settled into more of an equilibrium phase as efforts went into continuing to miniaturize the sets to allow them to be truly portable by something less than a four-wheeled vehicle and to work on ways to extend the range of radio communication by exploiting things like interaction of the signals with the atmosphere to allow it to bend around the curvature of the Earth. And that is where we came into the story with John Chapman and his group studying how to improve communications with Canada's North using high-frequency radio signals. And this, to some extent, explains why the early days of satellite development focused on studying the atmosphere to facilitate point-to-point -point communication on the ground, uh, or even in the case of the ECHO project, uh, focused on reflecting signals off large reflectors in space like mylar balloons or, or even in some cases the moon. The point is that at the time, RF engineers were not thinking about using so-called VHF, very high frequency, and UHF, ultra high frequency, radio bands for long-range communications. These are the bands that are in the hundreds of kilohertz and megahertz range, and they're the ones that are typically used for commercial and military radios. 
But military radios of this type are more or less restricted to line of sight, which meant that in 1960, they were basically used for short-range communication, not long-range communication. It took a bit of experience with spacecraft to realize that these same frequencies could be used over much longer distances if you were communicating with a spacecraft in space. Once the penny dropped, however, the race was on. The equilibrium of the communications world was well and truly punctuated. Now, we traced the history last time up to the very first geostationary communication satellite called SYNCOM-2. This was the first satellite to offer the ability to connect the whole of North and South America with a permanent, constantly available relay station in orbit. And although SYNCOM proved it was possible for pretty much anyone to talk to anyone else in the hemisphere, provided both of those individuals had telephones that were connected to a network, that ran to a large house-sized antenna that happened to be pointed at the satellite and provided that pretty much no one else in the hemisphere wanted to use the service and SYNCOM2 was pretty much limited to one user and just a few voice channels at one time. So SYNCOM pointed the way to the future, but it was still not really a practical solution or even a prototype of a practical solution. To get to a practical solution, two fundamental challenges had to be overcome. Well, in today's business speak, we would say that there was actually only one fundamental issue, and it was one of product market fit. Or put another way, the main use case that was of interest to most users was not being supported by the technology of the time. Or to put it in plainer English, um, with the amount of infrastructure that income needed its customers to have to support the volume of traffic it could support, and this was still a rare and expensive resource, and so it wasn't going to be commonplace that it would be used. For satellite communications to really uh, take off, so to speak, it needed to become more accessible to more people. And the keys to making that happen were to remove the need for a massive ground antennas to talk to the satellite and to massively increase the volume of traffic that could be handled simultaneously so more people could use the resource at the same time. And, in effect, the solution to both of these problems was the same. First of all, the technology needed to move up the frequency spectrum, because, as we already know, higher frequencies allow for more information to be carried and for smaller antennas to be used. And secondly, satellites also needed to get a lot more powerful because the power available would need to be split between multiple transmitters to serve multiple customers at the same time. To put the problem in perspective, the satellite iteration that followed SYNCOM, called Intelsat-1 and often known as Early Bird, uh, and as, and which was seen as kind of the first even minimally viable commercial geo-satellite, um, it featured two 6-watt transmitters, it operated in the 50 megahertz band and could provide a single relay between two points with 240 voice channels or a single television channel. The antennas needed to communicate with the satellite were about 10 meters across and the satellite needed equivalently 10 meter long stem antennas. The satellite weighed in at a mere 34 and a half kilograms and measured about a meter on the side. Now, a bit more than a decade later, the Canadian government would launch what I would argue became the first genuine prototype of a geostationary communication satellite. It was called the Communications Technology Satellite, or HERMES. 
It weighed 680 kilograms. It operated in the 4 to 8 gigahertz band and had a total power output of 1,200 watts. It could broadcast television signals to literally thousands of users simultaneously, direct to their own homes, where they would need an antenna about the size of a pizza pan to receive the signal. Now, we'll talk a lot more about the details of CTS next week and how it really did, in some ways, put the final exclamation mark on the initial period of punctuation of the satellite comms industry. But for now, let's just look at what had to happen in order to get from early bird to CTS. First, it was necessary to move up the frequency band into the gigahertz range, because only at those wavelengths could the size of the antennas become manageable for anything like an individual user. Now, this is roughly equivalent to the shift from long wave to short wave in the 1920s. The initial long wave antennas and transmitters were massive affairs that were really beyond the means of all but the largest corporations and national governments. But shortwave antennas were much more accessible, um, still not available to individuals, but certainly affordable by entrepreneurs who used the technology to disrupt the communications industry of the day. And, and in a similar way, going to a roughly one meter satellite dish would mean that satellite communications would be available to users and uh, distributors that did not need to invest in building building-sized antennas and attendant buildings to house the equipment to run and maintain them. It would also mean that users would not have to manage a large landline communication network to support having enough of a customer base feeding into the large antenna in order to support the expense of that infrastructure. In short, it would mean that satellite communications would no longer be the sole province of large existing telecommunications corporations and national governments, and it would be more open to more innovative and disruptive forces, which, in turn, would transform the industry and begin the cycle of massively increasing demand that would make satellite communications first viable, then profitable, and then essential to our modern society. In this case, the satellite communications industry was the beneficiary of larger improvements in radio frequency technology and in electronics in general that were occurring anyway don't want to go into another massive digression on the silicon revolution and the advent of the solid state transistor, but suffice it to say that the move to higher and higher radio frequencies was driven by a lot of forces outside of the space industry. Regardless of how we got there, the move to gigahertz band communications was well and truly underway by the late 1960s, uh, but the technology had not yet flown in space. And that was because being able to make efficient use of this technology required a solution to another technical issue. And that was how to dramatically increase the power available to a satellite on orbit. Now, this may seem like just a simple matter of giving satellites bigger batteries or something. But it was actually a significant challenge. Um, and in fact, it was actually a series of issues nested inside one another. The first and ever-present challenge was weight. Because of the inescapability of the rocket equation, every kilogram of weight that was added to a satellite meant many more kilograms of fuel and fuel tanks and rocket engines that had to be added to the rocket, which meant that there was an ever-increasing need for more powerful rockets. So, to the extent that solving the power problem was going to add weight, it caused a different 
problem, that of getting more powerful boosters, which put a significant constraint on how that problem of power generation and storage could be solved. In order to understand the power problem, uh, we need to talk about how satellites generate and store electrical energy that they use. Uh, in the early days of space travel, spacecraft took all the electrical energy they would need to orbit with them, stored in batteries. Now, this was workable when the power requirements of the spacecraft were modest and the duration of the flights were very short, days or maybe even weeks. Um, now, spacecraft like the Apollo spacecraft and other large manned spacecraft used something called a fuel cell that combined hydrogen and oxygen to generate uh, electrical power. But again, that used uh, consumables that were heavy, and it wasn't really a choice that could be used for a satellite. Now, the obvious choice of technology to solve the problem of power generation in a satellite was, and frankly still is, the photovoltaic cell. These are panels and materials that cause an electrical current to flow when they're exposed to direct sunlight. Uh, in order to avoid yet another lengthy digression, I want, don't want to go into how that technology works, but suffice it to say that it was reasonably readily available during the time period we're talking about. The important thing to know about photovoltaic technology is that the panels, while not excessively heavy, aren't light either. And the second thing to realize is that the panels are flat, and they are mechanically a little fragile. So care has to be taken in how they're mounted. Finally, it needs to be recognized that they only work in direct bright light, and they work really best when that sunlight is hitting them vertically, meaning perpendicular to uh, their surface. Now, I should note that over time, all of these restrictions have eased a bit, and modern solar cells are much lighter, more robust, and flexible, both physically and operationally, than they were in the 1960s. But at the time we're talking about, it's fair to think of photovoltaic cells as being heavy, flat, fragile, and limited to only work at full power when pointed directly at the sun. So in a sense, the basic concept of using photocells on a spacecraft is pretty obvious. Accessibility to bright sunlight doesn't get much better than being on orbit, but the implementation does get a bit tricky. First of all, the cells need to be applied to the object, and that object is going to be strapped to a bomb with a hole in one end and blown through the atmosphere at several times the speed of sound, which is not really what you do to things that you consider to be a little fragile. Also, said object is most likely to be fairly compact and it will almost certainly not have a lot of long, wide, flat surfaces that you can cover with flat plates. Finally, weight is definitely going to be an issue. But that leaves out the most, most important issue, um, what people in the business call pointing. See, in the early days of satellites, as we have discussed, satellites were designed to spin continuously uh, around an axis uh, that would allow them to point that axis accurately. Uh, which they needed to do because they had to aim their antennas and their sensors in known directions consistently. So even once you designed a satellite so that you could cover it pretty much entirely with solar panels, which is what the early satellite designers did, the fact of the matter was that only a small fraction of those cells would be pointing at the sun at any one time, all of which meant that you were covering your satellite in a coating of relatively heavy, fragile tiles whose main purpose, um, for most of the time that they were on orbit, was frankly decorative, since they wouldn't be pointing at the sun. 
A number of different solutions to this problem were proposed and tried, uh, including having a large skirt of solar cells that would unfold in orbit and dramatically increase the area of the solar array facing the sun, even as the satellite rotated. But really, the fundamental problem was that photo photovoltaic cells work best when they're laid out in broad, flat planes that faced the sun and didn't move, or if they did move, they moved only slowly to track the sun's movement. So solving the issue of power generation on orbit really came down to getting rid of the spin of the satellite so that you could build into it long, flat solar arrays that unfolded when it was on orbit and could be held stationary and face the sun. So put another way, it was all about attitude control. Essentially, a way needed to be found to provide stability to a spacecraft without requiring something that would effectively use up a consumable, some kind of fuel, because the satellite had to be on orbit for a long time, so things like the reaction control system that the Mercury capsule used could not be used on a satellite that was going to be in orbit for years. The reason that spin stabilization had been chosen originally as a way of controlling the attitude satellite is that because the rotation of the satellite gave it access to a principle known as the conservation of angular momentum which is A, another opportunity for a massive digression we don't have time for, and B, a massive gift that keeps on giving, granted by the laws of physics to any rotating body. The very short summary is that once you start something rotating, it becomes very stable so long as it keeps rotating, with no extra effort required, except the effort, if any is required, to keep it rotating. More than that, if you exert a force on a rotating body, it will push back on you, but not in the direction you pushed it. Instead, it will push back in a direction at right angles to the way you pushed. The simple exam simplest example of this is when you lean a moving bicycle over. Instead of falling over sideways, it tends to change the direction that it's moving instead. Now, this principle of gyroscopic stability had been used in various kinds of systems to measure the attitude of a system as a vehicle, or a vehicle. Aircraft used directional gyros, rockets used it for guidance cues, Mercury spacecraft used it. But the innovation that was needed was to develop a system that not only measured the spacecraft's attitude, but which used the principle of conservation of momentum to control that attitude as well. Essentially, the idea was to create a system which consisted of an enclosed spinning wheel which was attached to motorized gimbals. In steady state, the angular momentum of the spinning wheel would tend to keep the spacecraft oriented in the direction of the axis around which the wheel rotated. To change direction of the spacecraft, a small amount of torque would be applied to one of the gimbals. This would cause the spacecraft to start to rotate in the direction perpendicular to the force being applied. By mounting three different reaction wheels and developing an appropriate control system, and that's important, it is possible to effectively point the spacecraft in any direction you like and to maintain the pointing direction to high precision by simply adding force in exactly the right gimbals on exactly the right wheel. This theory was well understood, even from the start of the satellite era, but it had never been put to the test, even into the early 1970s. But by this time, it was becoming clear that for telecommunications satellites to realize their full potential, the problem of increasing power generation on orbit dramatically was going to need to be solved, which 
for many engineers meant solving the three-axis stabilization problem with a solution other than spinning the satellite. One of those engineers was, again, John Chapman at DRTE in Canada. In the late 1960s, Chapman began planning and uh, vigorously advocating for Canada to use its last cooperative mission with NASA to build and test a prototype of a truly modern communications satellite, a satellite that could, in fact, be used for true point-to-point communications and which used the new KU band, which required a one-meter class antenna and which had the bandwidth and power to serve thousands of users from a permanent position in geostationary orbit. As was often the case, John Chapman got his mission. The satellite, known as the Communications Technology Satellite, also known as Hermes, would eventually launch in 1976. And that is where we are going to pick up the story in the next episode, because we have a bit of a treat lined up. Mac Evans, who has been a guest on the show before, was actually there in the Mission Control Center of the Communications Technology Satellite. More than that, he was actually the mission director and he managed the program through its development that got it to launch. Even better than that, he has tapes, folks. Mac has recordings of the actual CTS mission control voice loops. Now, without giving too much away, uh, the CTS mission experienced just a little bit more excitement than anyone really wanted or expected on their way to geostationary orbit. So next episode, we're going to sit down with Mac and talk about CTS how it became the prototype for the next couple of decades of worth of communication satellites, how it got to orbit, and how it almost didn't. So join us next time for that conversation. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.